Thanks for pressing play. What concerns arise when a far forward small surgical team finds itself in a scenario where it must provide prolonged casualty care? When the expected evacuation timeframe of critically injured patients extends from a few hours to potentially days? Stick around and find out. Welcome to War Dogs, the military medicine podcast. This show brings you a first-hand, behind-the-scenes look into the mission, unique opportunities, and deployed experiences of the entire military healthcare team. From state-of-the-art hospitals in the United States to the most austere environments across the globe, War Docs has you covered. Military Medicine and War Docs present a Ready Medical Force Special Collection. We speak with the authors of recently accepted journal articles addressing the key readiness issues in operational medicine and discuss the importance of their findings. On this special Wardox episode, we speak with active duty trauma surgeon, Lieutenant Colonel Richard Lesperance. Rich has a wealth of experience providing care at Roll 2 facilities in austere locations. And today he discusses his paper in the journal Military Medicine entitled, Lessons Learned During Prolonged Care of Combat Casualties by a minimally manned surgical team. I'm your host, retired Army urologist, Dr. Doug Soderdahl. Today we're privileged to welcome Lieutenant Colonel Dr. Richard Lesperance to Wardox. Rich, thanks for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me, sir. It's really an honor to be on Wardox. Well, this is kind of a, a special episode for us, and it's our chance to really talk to the authors of some of the Ready Medical Force articles that have been published or will be published soon in military medicine. And so you wrote an article that talks about lessons learned during prolonged care of combat casualties by a minimally manned surgical team. What led you to write that article and, and what questions were you trying to address or answer? Well, this article really came just from my personal experience during one of my deployments to Afghanistan in an austere environment with a Roll 2 surgical team. And in returning from that deployment, I had uh, coffee with a friend of mine who wound up being one of our co-authors here, who is very was very interested in prolonged care and was heavily involved in doctrinal development. He's an Australian Army physician who did a exchange tour with our CDID, the Capabilities Development Team here at, in San Antonio. So he's been very heavily interested in doctrine. And when I told him about my personal experiences, he got really excited and insisted that we had to record these lessons because it was kind of right in an area where he thought there was a large gap in our NATO military doctrine. So in your article, you describe two cases that you had and they were treated by what you called a split FST, a forward surgical team. And I know that those is kind of alphabet soup to a lot of people. And that's changed to an FRST, which then changed to an FRSD. Can you tell us what those letters stand for and what does it mean to be split? Sure. The forward surgical team has been the Army's doctrinal answer for the standard Rule 2 damage control surgery team for... 20, 25 years, I think, possibly even a little longer. It's a 20-person team with three general surgeons, one orthopedic surgeon, and then a total of 20 people with CRNAs, surgical techs, medics, and post-operative recovery person. It's basically, you can imagine it's taken up the mission from the TV show MASH that we saw back in the day when we were kids of damage control surgery, stabilizing a patient, doing the bare minimum 
to control hemorrhage, to reestablish vascular continuity for severe vascular injuries, and to control enteric spillage. To do that bare minimum damage control surgery and then stabilize the patient for transfer to a Rule 3 facility, which will be more definitive surgery. How would you describe your resources in, in these two cases? You're, you're part of this 10-man team. What did you think that you were prepared to care for? What were you ready for? Well, with the change in the global war on terror to less active combat operations by American forces and more American forces acting as a support, as you well know, we suffered a much lower casualty rate, yet we still had troops widely geographically dispersed. So we had to have surgical teams very widely geographically dispersed over a country the size of Texas, Afghanistan. But these teams saw a very small number of casualties. So they were the split FST was basically somebody coming up with an idea of taking this 20-person team and cutting it down the middle and turning it into 10. The FRSD and FRST, fairly synonymous really, is simply a doctrinal acknowledgement and some reconfiguration to allow that split a little better. So it's a 10-person team, one surgeon, one orthopedic surgeon, a CRNA, an ICU nurse, surgical technologist, and a couple of medics and an admin person. So we truly have the smallest doctrinal, conventional surgical role two surgical team that the army could conceive of here. So your capabilities, according to the doctrine, would be that you could operate on one patient at a time yes. and maybe hold four patients for up to six hours? Correct. That, that's what the current FRSD doctrine envisions. So the patients that you had both were significantly injured and required damage control surgery, had abdominal surgery and came out of that surgery intubated, one actually had to return to the OR because you couldn't get out in the, the normal time because of weather. Tell us about how your unit was prepared to care for these patients for something that went beyond doctrinal timing. You, they stayed there for 30 hours and not six. Our unit was not prepared to care for them, in, in short. We were lucky that we got the patients out at the 30-hour mark because the weather reports initially said we were looking at six or seven days that we would have to hold on to these patients. My unit got lucky in a couple of ways in that I frequently deal with ICU patients in, in my job as a trauma critical care surgeon at BAMC. My CRNA was actually a BAMC CRNA that regularly took care of level one of sick trauma patients in a level one trauma center. And our ICU nurse, she was in a, currently in a non-clinical job, had just got done with some extensive time working, uh, doing a lot of clinical work in an ICU. So she was very experienced. Not every FST is going to have this lucky coming together of a core of three or four people that are comfortable working with sick patients, though. So in many ways, we got lucky with the personnel mix that we had to address, this, address these two casualties with. Now, were there any other resources in the area, other role two units, medical companies, or somebody that could assist you in taking care of these patients? We had no other U.S. assets that could assist us. There were two 18 Deltas uh, on the base that were with the indigenous force that we were supporting. 
that came down and said, hey, what can we do to help? And we did have several uh, local Afghan medics that were assigned to the Afghan medical element that we were co-located with. And they could do the very basics of nursing care. They might be able to turn a patient as far as ventilator management, fluid management, medication administration, things like that. Unfortunately, they were not, they were not qualified to do. If you look back on the U.S. experience in OIF and OEF, I think we got pretty accustomed to having rapid transport through the rule two. In fact, most patients, if you look at all patients, all of them were out by 2.5 hours. And those who required surgery, if you just looked at that subset, they were out of that rule two and on their way to rule three by four hours. Is that a realistic assumption for the future? And how can we prepare for scenarios such as yours where you really didn't have support and you had to hang on to these fairly critically injured patients for more than six hours? And that's exactly why we decided to write this paper. Colonel Jen Gurney is another one of my co-authors. Many of your listeners are going to know her as the current chief of the Joint Trauma System. And she's been involved in trauma care systems for decades now in, in the Army. And she really felt passionate about getting this message out there for, for that exact reason. We've been spoiled with our air dominance and our rapid evacuation time. Uh, and as a result of that, we've all gotten to think that this is the normal that we're going to be able to offload our patients from the role two within really just a few hours. If our next conflict is with a peer or a near peer adversary, it is highly unlikely that we're going to have the ability to offload those patients like that. So in your paper, you made six specific recommendations that would help bridge the gap between where we're at currently and our desired future in prolonged casualty care. In your view, which of these should receive the number one priority and how do we address it and measure our success or failure? Number, number one, in my personal opinion, is the, having the strong basis of clinical expertise. It is borderline in my estimation to have forward surgical teams or FRSDs that spend the majority of their time in the motor pool or doing land nav exercises as opposed to the majority of their time in a level one trauma center. We were able to provide the care that we did to our casualties because we were lucky and we had several people that regularly participated in trauma care of patients. Many other teams I've deployed with spend more time in the motor pool than they do in the hospital. They don't have that strong basis of clinical expertise to fall back on when they're in an unexpected situation and they're like, okay, now we have to put in an NG tube. We have to come up with a DVT prophylaxis plan. We were able to do things like that because of the strong basis and clinical expertise we had. None of those shows up on the typical Army medal task list, though. One of the other things you mentioned in the article that you dealt with was that these patients were ventilated after the surgery, and only three of the people on your team had any experience taking care of ventilated patients. Is there a possibility that some of the medics could be trained to become comfortable at least making some setting changes with direct involvement or other guidance, maybe using telemedicine or some other way to expand that cross-training, which was another one of the recommendations that you had. Absolutely. And even in the teams I've deployed with that don't have that strong basis of clinical medicine, they're all really smart, high-functioning people. And with minimal amounts of training, they can get the basics down. 
and with some experience at cross-training, hopefully in, a, in an actual clinical environment, they'll feel a lot more comfortable, maybe not even making ventilator changes, but they'll know that when a ventilator alarms of taking the initial immediate action steps they need to do to take care of the patient while they're getting on the radio and saying, hey, I need the doc or the CRNA to come down and help me out here because this guy just suddenly got hypoxic for some reason. As long as that surgical technologist or even my admin officer, the 70 Delta, even if they feel comfortable with the basics of troubleshooting the ventilator and the immediate actions, that's truly a, a force multiplier for the team. So one of the recommendations that you made that I found interesting was understanding the role of, quote, crisis standards of care. And that concept received a lot of attention during COVID because of the relatively lack of resources and an overwhelming demand. Tell us what that means in an FST or on the battlefield. When do you have crisis standards of care? And is that standard of care in an FST OR the same standard of care you'd find in a level one trauma center in New York City or Boston? That's a great question. And, and it's a little controversial. The term crisis standard of care had a lot of value during the worst days of the COVID epidemic when we had to socialize the idea that we might not be able to provide 100% care to 100% of the patients. In an FST or even in a role three environment, in the deployed environment, by definition, you are never having as many resources as you would have in a level one trauma center. So the standard of care you're providing is still the same, but with the level of care to achieve that standard may not be the same. For example, a patient with a penetrating facial injury in a, in a level one trauma center is going to have a facial trauma specialist, either an ENT or an OMFS surgeon as part of the care team. In a role two, I don't have that, but I have received the bare training to do the bare amounts of damage control surgery for that facial trauma. It would not be standard of care for me to provide that level of training at Brook Army Medical Center, for example, but in a small fob in Southeast Afghanistan, I'm trained, the, the expectation is I'm trained up to do the best that I can. So we're not providing substandard care to the patients, but we're acknowledging the fact that the resources we have and the environment we have is significantly less. One of the things on the team that you have is that you have some relatively junior members, maybe the medic or the OR technician, haven't been out of training for very long. And if they are in a situation where they see patients that maybe where they're used to or they trained would survive because they could get the blood products or technology that they needed to survive. If they're in the middle of Afghanistan and they're seeing patients do poorly simply because you don't have the resources, how do you prepare them for that? I think they need to be prepared for it for, like I said, the basis of clinical training and the clinical excellence that the team needs to have going into it. That's not just working in the level one trauma center, but that's also scenario-based training specific to the role two environment, like is done down in Miami with ATTD, like the Stark program used to do here at Brook Army Medical Center, where scenarios are constructed to put that team in exactly that type of environment to teach them what they can do and what they can accomplish. On the back end of things, it's just as important in my mind for after-action reviews because 
one of the hardest things we've ever had to do is sit around after a patient has died and discuss what went wrong, what we could have done better, or more important, or I shouldn't say more importantly, but just as important, why we couldn't have done anything better, but the patient still died, especially with younger soldiers with less clinical expertise. Socializing things like that are incredibly important. So they're going to have their head in the game and be ready to take care of the next patient that comes in. Well, Rich, I really enjoyed our time talking about your article and the insights and recommendations that you have of improving training and preparation for prolonged casualty care scenarios. If you could give a 30-second elevator speech of why this paper is important and why people should pick it up and read it, what would you say? I would say this paper shows that we cannot use our experiences from the last war to train, to dictate how we're going to train for the future war. We have to think and we have to be ready. We have to look at doctrinal answers to better equip the teams. We need better training for the teams. The whole spectrum of .MIF PLP improvement to integrate in prolonged care scenarios into regular training and equipment and doctrine for these small surgical teams, because it's not a question of if it's going to happen. It will happen. And if we don't prepare for it now, there is going to be needless death and suffering as we try to relearn the lessons that have been forgotten. We've been speaking with Dr. Rich Lesperance on WarDoc's podcast. Rich, thanks again for discussing your paper and sharing your insights with us. And thank you for your service to the nation. Thank you for inviting me. And I look, I look forward to following WarDocs in the future. And now a brief message from the chairman of the WarDocs Board of Directors. Hi, I'm Major General Retired Jeff Clark, and I have the privilege to serve as chair of the WarDocs Board of Directors. Let me begin by thanking AMSIS for our AMSIS WarDocs partnership, Military Medicine, the International Journal of AMSIS, and specifically Dr. Steve Rothwell, the editor of our outstanding journal of military medicine. Readiness, a medically ready force and a ready medical force is central to military medicine. And anything that we want to understand and improve in medicine, and in particular military medicine, requires good research. It requires science. I want to thank the authors of these articles that are published in the Journal of Military Medicine for taking on the challenge of doing the research to understand what we know, what we don't know, and where we need to go in improving the care we provide on the battlefield. I hope these authors inspire you to ask and answer the next Ready Medical Force question and publish in the Journal of Military Medicine. Thank you for what you and your family do in service to our nation. Be safe. May God bless. Thank you for listening to War Docs. We sure hope you enjoyed it. War Docs is a nonprofit organization supported by donations from listeners like you. Please follow and subscribe to our show on whatever platform you consume your podcasts and rate and review this episode and share the show with your contacts on social media. Find out more information about our show, our guests, and how to become a member of Team WarDocs on WarDocsPodcast.com. Thank you for your support. If you like war stories and medical drama, WarDocs has you covered. Spread the word.